Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk and uh, John is once again in the throes of a very complicated case. So he's unable to join us this morning, but I hear that things should clear up for next week and he will be with me once again, hopefully. But uh, we're all thinking of him. Uh, in fact, I had to really pull myself away just for the uh, opportunity to speak with you this morning and I'll jump right back into the the hard work that we do but uh, I saw an interesting story and it kind of made me think about uh, some of the bigger issues in our criminal justice system or our justice system or whatever you want to call it uh, I don't know if you heard but there was this guy there is this guy named Nicholas Alaverdian and they think that's his name anyway, but uh, he was uh, facing many charges in both Utah and Ohio. And some of these were sexual assault charges, some were uh, fraud charges, uh, you know, a, lo a lot of uh, criminal activity going on. And somehow this guy managed to fake his own death. And it's interesting because uh, one of the alleged victims in this overall pattern of criminal activity is his wife, uh, who um, apparently he has stolen somewhere in the neighborhood of $60,000. Um, he's fraudulently obtained uh, another $200,000 in funds. Um, and they discovered him in Scotland with an active, severe case of COVID-19. Um, he was in a hospital in Glasgow on a ventilator. Now, this is a strange story, but it also is a really good example of how uh, DNA technology has gotten to the point where when someone submits a sample for various reasons, it can be based on a conviction. In Wisconsin, like many other states, there is a DNA sample requirement for somebody that's even just arrested for an offense. And what happened was uh, some of these offenses go back over uh, a decade, and there had been DNA collected from this guy, Nick Alaverdian, and it was in the DNA database. And there was um, a cold case where there had been DNA gathered, but there had been no way of determining who the perpetrator was in the case until it was later uh, run and compared with DNA samples that are in you know the larger, I guess, global database that's out there. And it came up with a hit on this guy. And so there had been a lot of confusion going on because, again, as I said, his his wife was a victim of some of this fraud that occurred. Yet there was an obituary that was published. And it talked about how he died from uh, leukemia. And it said the stuff you'd normally see in an obituary. After a long, courageous battle with non-Hodgkin lymphoma, I think it was, uh, he finally succumbed. And it said his wife uh, was by his side when he died. 
Hmm. Interesting. Because uh, there was an ongoing pursuit of him after that based on money that he had spent without, you know, marital authorization, so to speak. And ultimately, this just happened a couple days ago, they arrested him on an international warrant for um, in Scotland, and, and presumably now there are extradition procedures being utilized, uh, assuming that he survives COVID. So let's break that down. It's very interesting when you think about um, the long arm of technology and how a case that went unsolved for well over a decade ends up uh, somehow pinpointing this guy and uh, identification wise. So part of what unraveled here is that the guy used a number of different aliases in his efforts to conceal his identity. Now, the thing that jumps about out about me the most about this, it actually does tie into another thing that I want to talk about today. And that is this, uh, this bill that's out there likely going to be passed and probably will be uh, signed by Governor Evers. I think he's indicated some support for this. But uh, the notion that there will be standardized uh, high cash bail amounts set in cases that have certain characteristics, including domestic violence and, uh, and so on. So uh, interestingly, the argument that's always made whenever someone's facing a charge that carries the potential for significant incarceration, uh, the argument we hear from prosecutors is that that automatically makes somebody a flight risk. Now think about it. If this story gets publicized like it has been, I mean, this was on, what is it? Uh, Apple News. It's gone all over the world. Uh, on, you know, it hit the presses on January 13th. Everyone's reading and talking about it. Well, wouldn't that demonstrate that anybody who does flee is uh, going to face a much tougher time uh, hiding their identity forever? I mean, this guy did all kinds of stuff, and albeit it was apparently successful for some period of time, he was ultimately found. And if there's a lesson you can glean from this is that you can run, but you can't hide. And I think that's especially true with our current state of technology, the ability to track people, the, the fact that there's ongoing surveillance of people all the time. And, you know, so this guy tried and didn't succeed in fleeing from his own crime. Yet when we're in court practically every day, we hear prosecutors talking about how any case for anybody, for any kind of crime, automatically gives them this overwhelming incentive to flee the jurisdiction and never come back, even though it hardly ever happens. I mean, once in a great, great while, somebody um, makes the unwise decision to not show up in court. And, uh, you know, in spite of the fact that it's an extraordinarily rare occurrence, it is the fundamental part of most prosecutors' arguments as to why somebody needs to pay a certain amount of money in order to uh, have their life go on in a way that's consistent with the presumption of innocence. So I want you to think about that for a minute because any district attorney's office has the power to allege anything 
Sometimes it's based on hearsay. Sometimes it's based on mistaken identity. Sometimes it's based on highly flawed evidence, which the rest of our system, of course, is designed to hopefully prevent a wrongful conviction from happening. Yet we know it does happen and people do get wrongfully convicted of things that they didn't do. And we have this sort of overarching, overreaching argument in in cases where prosecution simply comes in heavy handed with the approach that, hey, we've charged, we've made this allegation and we're also afraid he's going to freak out and leave, he or she, right? And that does tend to carry some weight with court commissioners and judges because they don't want to be wrong. Now, this all goes back to the fairly recent event with this individual in Milwaukee County who had a very, very low cash bond to post uh, in a case where there was violence alleged. And in fact, ironically, the allegations in the case where he posted the low bond involved him attempting to run over his significant other with his car. And lo and behold, uh, look what happened when he got out. He ended up killing six people and injuring a bunch of others with his own car. So, you know, it, this is one of those things in the law where if you try and make a sweeping change to the entire system after hundreds of years of precedent and you know, theoretically the, the system fine-tuning itself in, in slow ways, you try and do something that makes a big, big change based on a singular incident, odds are that it's um, going to be too broad and, and too uh, harmful in its overall application because of its failure to account for the individual characteristics of any given situation. So we'll pick up back with that thought right after these messages from our sponsors. Stay tuned. I just want to comment briefly on uh, a lot of the feedback that I get regarding this show. And it truly is a pleasure to go out in the community and interact with people and and receive the feedback that we do. Not everyone agrees with everything I say, and I wouldn't expect you to, but generally I do get a lot of uh, good positive comments, at least um, with regard to the show being entertaining and talking about stuff. And I, I feel like it's a way that we can connect. And I feel like I'm spending time with all of you, um, even though I can't hear your voices back. You know, years and years and years ago, we used to do the show with a call-in type basis, like you, you know, you see a lot of these other shows. And for one reason or another, um, the format of that became uh, too difficult to to basically apply in a way that made it um, to achieve the purposes that we really are aiming to do here, which is to inform the public on the inner workings of the justice system. And uh, no criticism intended here, but we would get calls from people that um, had some bizarre questions. So, you know, for sheer entertainment value, I suppose it was interesting to hear people with their strange questions because, um, you know, the answers could be uh, a little uh, difficult to formulate under uh, a variety of circumstances. But, you know, we did transition to this format many, many years ago, and it's it's been better for everybody, I think. 
And I'll just point out, you can always send me questions uh, through the WHBL website. Uh, email them to me um, and or mail them like regular mail, if you like. And we do our best to address those issues. We do get a lot of questions. Every once in a while, I, I like to do a Q&A type show where I answer questions that have come in from people in the community and we'll have another one of those. I kind of save them up, you know, until we get a, a good number of uh, interesting questions that can uh, lend, lend themselves to an analysis of uh, legal issues that are presented. But back to this case where this fellow in uh, Scotland ends up getting caught and uh after having been basically on the run for over a decade now he's he's 34 years old now um he was using an alias arthur knight which sounds like an alias by the way <laughs> and uh gets found in a glasgow hospital on a ventilator um and interestingly the part of the identification occurred through photographs and then ultimately fingerprints and DNA. But the process was something that uh, I suppose by happenstance just sort of started. But getting back to my point about the arguments that we hear about bail needing to be high in order to secure appearances and theoretically protect the public. This is really a symptom of our desire to um, be able to predict the future with absolute certainty. And there are many features of the justice system that purport to, um, even without saying so out loud, you know, that's how we figure in a utopian world, the system would work. Um, practically every day, if you attend court and hear the proceedings that occur, there's this overall tenor that uh, that's going to fix the problem. It's going to either punish the person the, pro the appropriate way or put them on probation to monitor them. All of which is really an effort for the government to be more involved in someone's personal life. And of course, we all have a sense of justice that more or less requires that action be taken when somebody does something wrong after the fact. And... I think pretty much every society has some component of that, whether it's a country here on Earth or if it's a, an episode of Star Trek. You know, there is this concept of dealing with misconduct and, and how it's addressed. Um, because of the way that governments work and the way that governments are involved in people's lives, you know, there's this give and take theory. We benefit greatly from the fact that we have police, we have fire departments, we have public libraries, we have roads that we can drive on, we have infrastructure. Somebody in the government's responsible for building that bridge that gets us from point A to point B. The government's all supposed to help us in times of need when there's a disaster or something like that. So yeah, the government's pretty important. But what I've learned over the years is that when it applies to this overall concept of dealing with individuals and the allegations of things they've done wrong, it significantly falls apart in reaching its goals. Yet, 
we all sort of have to pretend that it's doing the job that we want it to do because otherwise everyone would just lose faith in the, the process itself. And there's so many things about our system that automatically cause us to lose faith in the integrity of the process. We tinker around with laws. We try to adjust this, adjust that, and make it so when people identify a problem that somehow it can be addressed through legislation. And then unfortunately, there's the role of politics in all this. Um, lawmakers, uh, if they want to keep their job, have to get reelected to their positions that they've, they've done, or a challenger has to come in with some bright idea about how to do a better job than the person who's the incumbent. And they pick and choose these social issues and then make laws that are supposed to address some social issue. Now think about that as an ongoing perpetual challenge for anybody who wants to earn votes from the public. And it lends itself to a distillation of the important issues so that they're Number one, easily identifiable by the general public. And number two, a harsh response that is also easily understood as being uh, a direct response to usually a particular event. So I'm going back again to this situation where there's all this criticism being mounted on the Milwaukee DA's office. And by the way, there, there is an update on that um, Governor Evers did chime in uh, with his disagreement that John Chisholm uh, should be removed from office based on the base, uh, citizens said he's got to go because his office was responsible for making the recommendation, by the way, which was ultimately followed by the court to let this individual out on a low bond so that he could later go out and kill people. Um, you know, we call that... The hindsight is twenty twenty Monday morning quarterbacking, whatever you want to call it, and uh, a reactionary uh, modification to our legal principles is, you know, again generally a bad idea because it's too. Um, you can't you, when you try and make something that's supposed to address all situations be flexible, be compatible with the notion that every case is different and every, every individual is different. Now, should there have been a higher bond in that particular case? Probably, but um, again, we don't know every single thing that happened leading up to that. You also have to remember, and as we are broadcasting right now, the reality of the fact is that there are hundreds of people that are in, in custody that are experiencing, um, yet again, a surge of COVID activity. And the places where people are most vulnerable, most at risk, um, despite what people might say otherwise, is in our close quarters confinement settings throughout the state. And I've heard prosecutors say, oh, it's actually the safest place because we can control activity and monitor stuff. Well, you know, in Dane County, just the other day, there were well over 100 inmates, as well as uh, correctional staff on top of that, that uh, have active cases of COVID. 
And that's true in pretty much every county jail as well. So, you know, this suggests that uh, we need to lock everybody up before they've been tried for anything really strains the system, especially when uh, the sheriff's department in any county is also tasked with keeping people safe. Um, you know for a fact that if somebody dies in custody in the jail, there's going to be lawsuits, etc., that come from that. Um, to, I guess, uh, recompense the person who was mistreated under those circumstances. Although oftentimes it's just bad luck. Um, time for another break. We'll be back after these messages. While we're talking about the power and authority that the government has to immediately impact someone's quality of life, especially when they are facing charges but haven't been convicted. Let me just break that down a little bit more because there is a significant difference in the law between the status of somebody who is awaiting the possibility of a conviction versus somebody who has been convicted and is sentenced. A person who has been sentenced is um, subject to the punishment that the court imposes, and that can include confinement. Somebody that hasn't been convicted but is awaiting their day in court and is in custody is because there's been a monetary cash requirement for the person to post in order for we as a society to say that we can trust the individual not to do more of what they've uh, supposedly been done. Now, it's a very rare situation that somebody that we can find someone as a good example of someone who is just going to commit a crime um, at all costs without any regard for the safety of the public, somebody who's truly a, a bad guy or bad gal. Because what happens most times, if it's a tragic event that's occurred, um, it's generally, and I don't mean everyone, but certainly generally, Somebody that led years and years and years of a good, stable, hard-working life with people that love him or her might have a pet or some kids or parents and grandparents and might go to church or might not. You know, but the point is that the day-in, day-out life of most people, and I, I, again, obviously not all, but most people, um, tends to... Uh, be the, the norm. And then uh, there's a bad spell there that's mostly attributable to one of three things, uh, substance abuse problems, mental health problems, or economic pressures that uh, due to whatever, somebody ends up resorting to crime in order to uh, make those economic ends meet. So if you really think about it, almost everything uh, falls into one of those three categories. Somebody has an unaddressed need for substance abuse treatment. They have mental health problems that also could and should be addressed. Or there's some sort of socioeconomic factor that uh, leads to a person engaging in criminal activity. So, you know, it's it's not very often that there is a crime that's committed that's not in one of those three categories. 
So this comes down to, do you believe in the basic good of people, or do you, are people basically evil, and we're just treading water in this society, hoping that you avoid um, the tragedy of, of being the victim of a crime at any, at any given time? You know, we have so much randomness in the process because we're failing to address those three factors that lead to criminal activity, and we're retroactively singling out the people that we as a society can catch doing something wrong, punish them and hope that this serves an example as an example to others, you know, like it's a kindergarten class, Tommy, you know, uh, ate a piece of chalk. So he's going to sit in the corner and everyone's going to laugh at him. I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of how our justice system does work, that to make everything so simplified. But a big part of this that I've always found problematic, and I think, unfortunately, this bill, if it becomes law, would standardize that entire process. Now, let me just comment. I think there's one good thing about that in the sense that we lack uniformity in our state, and there's no standards. There's no you know basic idea as to what a particular type of crime calls for when it comes to uh, a bond amount. Now, part of that is because we have a tremendous diversity of economic affluence or lack thereof in our state. Um, people in urban areas in our state, there's a combination there of people that earn more money than the average and also earn less than the average. We have rural parts of our state where the overall average income is significantly less and a lot of it is dependent upon um, farming and the agricultural uh, waxing and waning of weather circumstances and so on. So it's designed to be something that is flexible based on the individual community, the standards, I suppose, of that community, but the fact that also a person that's very wealthy um, will very easily perhaps be able to come up with bond money and somebody who is not wealthy and um, is struggling to make ends meet will certainly not be able to post that amount. And if you listen to the show, you've heard me talk about this many times, but uh, all of this process where somebody is labeled with um, a monetary amount that represents this person's freedom you know and it's a right a person has a right to their freedom if they haven't if they're not being punished for something so the notion is that you know the prosecutor comes in and says look at what this person supposedly did and look how bad it is and we can't trust this person to to comply with the law this person is dangerous and then above all, flight risk. Uh, we believe that if this person's not kept in custody on a significantly high amount of cash that he, the person may or may not have, uh, then the prosecution always argues that they'll lose the opportunity to prosecute this person. Um, so what ends up happening is that it's pure guesswork. The process happens over the course of maybe 60 seconds or a little bit more, a little bit less, where somebody who doesn't know 
the defendant in any way. And, and by the way, there's another part of this process you need to be aware of. Um, if somebody is lucky enough to have representation at that initial determination of their um, bond amount that will be posted, it tends to be somebody who is already indigent because the lawyers that work for the public defender's office, God bless them, work very, very hard. And it's generally true that someone is not eligible for public defender representation unless they're flat out completely indigent with no resources and no ability to pay a lawyer at all. And although I know some counties, and ours is one of them, that does a fairly good job of having someone um, be provided with counsel at least for the very first hearing because they have not yet determined if someone's eligible for public defender representation. You know, it, you're lucky. It's just plain luck if you have somebody there to speak on your behalf. And a lot of times it doesn't happen. Sometimes the public defender's office determines that a person's ineligible right off the bat. And then it's up to a person in custody to rely upon their friends and family to go out and hire a private lawyer, which has to happen very, very quickly. And oftentimes, I would say most times, that's hard to do because trial lawyers who actively engage in representation of defendants are doing so every day, all day, all over the place. So it's not an easy thing to find somebody, and especially if you're in custody. You, you have to have the good fortune to, number one, have the friends, family, and other resources in order to communicate with and hire a lawyer outside of the confines of a jail facility. Then they have to be lucky enough to find somebody. Then what has to happen is that that lawyer has to find a way to summarize the essence of a person's life on very, very short notice. And the way it tends to go is, hello, sir, I, uh, I'm here to represent you. Tell me a little bit about yourself, you know, as they're just about to call the case. Uh, oh, do you own a home? Do you have a job? Any kids? Are you married? How long have you lived here? You know, boom, boom, boom. All this real quick information gets conveyed as, you know, <laughs> within minutes sometimes to a court commissioner or a judge. And the prosecutor doesn't know anything other than just what they've written in their own criminal complaint comes in and tries to summarize the essence of this person also in a very short period of time. There are those that say that, oh, well, you can just reapproach the issue later with a judge and ask for a modification of a high cash bond if that's what ends up happening. And yes, you'll have another opportunity to, to do so, but we'll talk about what happens nine times out of ten in that scenario when we come back after these messages. Right before the break, I was talking about how there is due process built into the determinations that a court may make regarding the amount of bond that somebody may have to post. And by the way, I just want to add a little footnote here because this question comes up a lot. We do not have bail bondsmen or businesses that can loan money to families to post bond. That's a process that thankfully was abolished back in the early 1970s in Wisconsin recognizing that it's a predatory practice and uh, doesn't do much to ensure someone's future appearance. And just so you're familiar with what we're talking about, you've probably seen it on TV like 
you know, dog, the bounty hunter and all this other stuff. In some states, they have an artificial way of determining bond. And it's based upon sort of an exaggeration of the number that needs to be posted. This is all based on, um, you know, private businesses that want to offer the loaning of money to people that need it. So let's say in those states, and I know that um, you know, New York is one of them, California is another, where the judge will set a bond, a cash bond, in the amount of, let's say, $100,000. It's understood that what that really means is something more like $10,000 because what someone can do is go to one of those little businesses that's right down the street from the courthouse in those jurisdictions. And if they can come up with the $10,000, then the bondsman will pay the other $90,000. And then this private business owner, you know, the bondsman, um, will charge an, a highly exorbitant rate of interest on that amount, you know, in the double digits of percentage. And then that person also is liable if the person fails to appear in the future. So it's kind of relying upon, you know, people to uh, interact, you know, on a business level, to interact with other people, conduct a business transaction, which in and of itself is, is somewhat onerous. And then somehow relying upon that individual's ability to control their uh, client's behavior. And I say client in a very loose way. So yes, uh, that, that was an issue that came up many, many decades ago in our state. And the wisdom of the legislature at that time was to abolish that practice because it's just not good for anybody at all in the process. Interestingly, um, when Scott Walker was governor he had pushed uh, the notion that we should bring that business back to Wisconsin. The idea being that it's another business opportunity for people, right? But fortunately, that never went anywhere. That, that would make this situation even worse, is what I can tell you. So when we have a court commissioner or a judge set a bond amount, a cash bond amount, it truly is that amount. So if it says $100,000, what that means is the person has to find and post $100,000 in order to get out, not a percentage of it or anything like that. It actually has to be posted. So, you know, the difference between someone who could come up with that and someone who can't, as a, as a matter of pure dollars and cents, ends up resulting in many people being incarcerated uh, perhaps unnecessarily, you know, or perhaps necessarily, you never know. But it, my point is it's a case by case basis. And to have these uniform rules all over the place as to, you know, one of them would be if anybody has a prior crime of domestic violence or for that matter, any prior felony, what they're talking about doing is having sort of like a baseline minimum cash amount, you know, statewide, so starts at 10,000 and goes up from there based on someone's assessment of this person's character based on their prior history. Well, I can say this, basing it on prior history is probably a little 
more reliable than not basing it on anything. So maybe that's a good thing. But the other thing is, you know, there are this wide variation that is supposed to sort of police itself, you know. There's supposed to be the natural economies of things that address how high that bond gets in a community. It's kind of supposed to almost happen automatically. Why? Because if the bonds overall are too high and there's too many people that are incarcerated, well, I suppose that the judges and DA's office will start getting feedback from the jails that are overcrowded and say, hey, you can't make these high bond recommendations. We don't have any place to put these people. Um, but <laughs> as it were, you know, then we come up with a situation like this, where if somebody for a variety of reasons, a large number of reasons ends up going into court as, as what happened in Milwaukee makes a low bond recommendation of $1,500. And because again, the economies of the circumstances, uh, a court commissioner ends up agreeing with that. And that's what the person posts. Then, you know, we blame everybody if something bad happens afterwards. So think about the things that nobody knows. And I, I use that as an example when we're talking about this automatic policing of the, the process. And in Milwaukee, where we know there is jail overcrowding, we know that there's like too many people and not enough spaces for them. And the fact that when someone's there, uh, and there's a determination as to what they need to post, it's natural that under those circumstances there would be a cooperative effort to keep the really, really bad guys from be going out and about and keeping the people that hopefully can be trusted to come back to court and not engage in a bunch of bad behavior to get out because every person that they can put in a situation where they're not being actively confined by jail staff is another opportunity for someone that truly is a bad guy that needs to be detained. So add to that a layer of dealing with COVID problems, add to that a layer of dealing with the backups, the backlogs that we've had over the past couple of years because of COVID activity. And all these things are supposed to be considered when uh, commissioner or judge sets that bond amount is that how, how can we make this process work so for one thing by having these mandatory on the one hand i want to say by having these you gotta start at a certain level kind of ignores the fact that there are many factors that go into that that will ultimately make uh, the job of yes the sheriff's department and court staff uh, more difficult now what I can say is that because of the lack of uniformity in our state, we have some counties that just have a, you know, 500,000% higher uh, cash bond recommendation for similar cases than what we see in other counties where it's a much smaller amount. And there's no legal way to address that discrepancy. If this bill passes and is signed into law, it would you know, at least have a starting point as to particular kinds of cases. And as, as we've heard, it would start at 10,000. There are some counties where it's already going to be well beyond that in a case with any kind of criminal history, like what they're talking about. And there are other counties that I guess the idea would be, oh, you got to start at this level. Again, 
uh, when you have a law that's supposed to just address the the sheer number of cases that crop up based on allegations combined with what we may or may not accurately know about someone's quote unquote criminal history this is just a process that's going to lend itself to abuse and ultimately um much more difficult for the system to account for it. And what's going to happen, uh, let's come back in a year and see if this really happened. This is going to result in requests from county jails and other correctional facilities to increase funding, to build them bigger and build more of them, which runs counter to another objective that we have as a state, which is to reduce the overall confined population of our state, which is really what most states are doing right now for a number of very good reasons. Um, but, you know, if we're going to make it so what we anticipate to be a certain number of people will necessarily then be in custody while they are accused of a crime and not, not yet convicted of it, the strains that will put on the system will be uh, profound and probably, um, have a ripple effect that goes through our entire society is entirely possible. So, uh, time to go, but I hope you enjoyed our little chat and you can tune in next week as you can every single Saturday morning from eight o'clock to nine o'clock right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. It's legal offense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.